Welcome to A Word Fitly Spoken, a podcast about Jesus, His Word, and our joy in following Him. I'm Amy Spreeman. And I'm Michelle Leslie, and we have a super episode tonight that we hope is going to be helpful to you in several different ways. If you're not familiar with G3 Ministries, we want to urge you to get familiar with it because it is such a benefit and a blessing to the local church and to individual Christians like you and me. That's right, Michelle. G3 was started almost 10 years ago by Josh Bice, and he's the pastor of Praise Mill Baptist Church in Dodgeville, Georgia. It started out as an annual Christian conference and has grown exponentially into publishing, podcasting, blogging, Sunday school and small group Bible study curricula, a network of churches, the national conference, regional conferences, pastor training workshops, and so much more. And Michelle and I have both attended the National Conference and taken advantage of a lot of G3's resources, and we could not recommend it more highly to you. That's right. I mean, we, you and I have both talked about the times we've been to G3 and we've talked about how, what a blessing it was and how, how helpful it was to us just to learn sitting under the various teachers that they had. And, and I just want to, I just want to say we're, G3 has not asked us to do this episode or anything like that. This is, they're not paying us uh, for a commercial or anything like that. We just think that much of G3. Uh, but tonight we specifically want to zoom in on those pastors training workshops that Amy mentioned, and here's why. October is Pastor Appreciation Month, and what better gift could you give your pastor than a trip to one of these workshops where he can fellowship with other pastors and learn more about the ministry he loves? And if you've got a son or a husband or a friend who's about to graduate seminary and go into the ministry, this would make a great graduation gift for him, too. It sure would, Michelle. Here are some of the workshops they have coming up, and you can get all the details about these G3 uh, conferences and workshops. So go ahead and click on our link included in today's program notes to find out everything you need to know. Here are the three expository preaching workshops coming up. The first one is September 8th and 9th in Piedmont, Oklahoma, taught by Phil Johnson. That one's going to center on the books of Jonah and Nahum. Then February of next year, the second and third in Lindale, Texas, taught by Mike Riccardi and focusing on 2 Corinthians, and then April 20th and 21st in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. That's in 2023. Um, Lake Geneva is just down south of me and about an hour away, so I'm really excited about this one. It's taught by Josh Bice from 2 Timothy. Yeah, those are the expository preaching workshops that are coming up, but there's also one worship workshop coming up, and this one will be good for your main preaching pastor, but it's less focused specifically on preaching and more on worship in general and the music portion of the worship service. That workshop, the Biblical Worship Workshop, is coming up really soon, October 26th through 27th in Conway, Arkansas, and it's going to be taught by several great brothers, Scott Anyal, uh, Jeffrey Johnson, Matt Sykes, Owen Strand, and someone who's near and dear to my heart because he's one of my pastors, Laramie Minga. 
Yeah, Laramie is going to talk with us tonight about a few of the things they cover in the worship workshop. So this is going to be really helpful to us as ladies, since uh, those workshops are only open to pastors and potential pastors, in other words, men. So ladies, we get a little free sample of the worship workshop here tonight. And if you're thinking about sending one or more of your pastors to the workshop, you can get a little better idea of what it's about from one of the teachers, or maybe you could just pass this uh, podcast along to your pastors and ask them to listen and see if they'd be interested in attending the worship workshop. Right. And also, listen up, ladies. Laramie just finished teaching a four-session series on worship at our church. So if what you hear on this episode isn't enough for you and you want to learn more about worship, we've got that series linked up in the show notes. I've, I've listened to all four of them, and I highly recommend that you go listen to. So with no further ado, we want to welcome our special guest today, Laramie Minga. Laramie, why don't you briefly tell us who you are and what you do as a pastor and with G3? Yeah, so I, for the last 11 and a half years, have served at Woodlawn Baptist Church in Baton Rouge as a pastor for worship and discipleship. And in so doing, I plan and lead the services here, um, train up our teams to fulfill their end of worship leadership. We have we have several instrumentalists that we use on the Sunday morning in a choir we have graded children choirs uh, and student choir and um, many other things going on as far as worship and discipleship goes. And then with discipleship, I'm overseeing things like Sunday school, life groups, discipleship ministries of the church. So we'll often do some like Sunday afternoon discipleship courses from time to time. And so overseeing those things here at Woodlawn uh, with G3, um, I'm their director of biblical worship workshops. And so we had our first one back in February. Uh, we've got another one coming up in October in Conway, Arkansas. And through that, it's a couple of days where we just invest in men who want to learn how to be better worship planners, uh, most of all. Um, so that's just a little bit about, about that. I imagine you'll ask some more questions for some details in that later. Uh, we sure will. And we're so glad to have you on the show with us today, Laramie. And we knew that our listeners would really be interested in this topic of worship. So, of course, we asked them to send us their questions for you today. But let's st- set the stage a little bit first. These days when we're talking about the corporate worship of the local church, we always tend to use the word worship synonymously with music or singing. Is that accurate and biblical? And what is worship? How do you define it? Uh, well, no, it's not accurate, <laughs> not biblical, um, but I'm sure you don't just want to know answer. Um, <laughs> no, please answer. expand. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, the the problem is, and really, the the whole idea of worship and music becoming synonymous is really credited to the the charismatic movement. Um, when you look at scripture and you see what worship is, it's it's certainly much more holistic than that. It includes things like preaching and praying. And singing, of course, uh, but also reading scripture, uh, practicing ordinances like the Lord's Supper and baptism, giving. And so all of these things are included in a service of worship. And therefore, all those elements, not just singing, should be considered worship. As far as what worship is, um, you know, a lot of people might say things like, oh, worship is praising God or worship, as you have just said, is is singing. Well, those things are all 
part of worship, but worship is certainly much greater than that. I think ultimately worship is communion with God. Um, and so we practice that in all of our lives, um, but we practice that. And really, as we're worshiping corporately, you know, that communion with God is is the goal of our worship. The purpose being edification, being the church being built up with the end goal of communion with God. Um, and so that would that would be just a quick articulation of what I think worship is, communion with God. That's a great answer. I mean, you know, I was just thinking it's really important that if we're going to go to a worship service, we really need to know what worship is and what we're there for and why we're going in the first place. So that was a really helpful Uh, Good brief definition. Well, I thought this next question was really interesting. The listener says, I'd like to hear you discuss the current Western format of a Sunday morning church service, like three to six worship songs, special music, communion offered in various order, you know, and the main message and maybe a final worship song. Is this how it should be? Seems formulaic. It's not what I read as a quote unquote formula for the early church. I think she means she doesn't read that in the Bible anywhere. And then I think you touched on this one a little bit, but you can probably answer this listener's uh, question at the same time. What elements should always be in a corporate worship Mm -hmm. time? For example, preaching, prayer, giving, et cetera. Yeah, that's, those are great. Those those are (laughs) great questions, especially that first one on, you know, a formula for worship and not necessarily seeing one in scripture Yet when you look at, she said Western um, culture, but you know, for me, I immediately think of growing up in uh, a rural town in Mississippi, in what a typical worship service looks like in an evangelical, you know, church in that setting. And it's yeah, just like what you described. You'd have some sort of opening song, kind of gets everyone's attention, and you have a welcome, a couple more songs, offering, special music, sermon altar call, invitation song. Yeah, so that's that's what I remember growing up, seeing a lot in a lot of churches practicing. And so I think it all comes down to, as far as a formula, there should be a formula, I think. Um, but it's, it's what is it that is motivating that formula? And so I think for the evangelical church, what we see a lot of time motivating their formula. And let's, let's, let me transition from using the word formula to liturgy. What I think is uh, influencing their liturgy is whatever end that they want. Um, and so in the evangelical church, a big end that people want is more of a revivalistic means towards, towards evangelism. Evangelism is definitely a good thing, but it's not the primary purpose of worship. Um, but in the 19th century, especially with revivalism, you know, Charles Finney being, being the leading character of that, you have the, this birth of a new way of doing worship in which everything is kind of shaped around trying to prioritize evangelism. And so then you have liturgies like that that take root, where everything is is pointing towards this climax of an altar call, if you will. Everything is really centered around that. Um, but as far as an actual biblical liturgy goes, I think it's really helpful to look at what patterns, what patterns, what shapes we see most often in scripture. And what what we see is this common pattern that I'll just call the, you know, the shape of the gospel. I mean, come up with that that term. It's it's one that you see men using like in Brian Chapel's Christ-centered worship. 
Um, Scott Annual uses it often in his books. Change from Glory into Glory is de- is, a, is a really helpful book as well. Um, many people over over the course of Christian history have used this this phrase of gospel shaped worship, and essentially we see the pattern in several places. We see it in Isaiah six, we see it in Revelation four and five, all the way through nineteen with the marriage supper of the Lamb. And in both of these cases, Isaiah six and Revelation, it's really a picture of heavenly worship. Um, and so we see it there. We see the narrative in places like Exodus 24, when Moses comes down with the word of the Lord to the people and they respond and praise and respond in confession. We see atonement taking place. We see it in Leviticus 9, where we see the first picture of worship in the temple um, or the tabernacle, rather. And so we see it all throughout Scripture. And even the overall narrative of Scripture is the shape of the gospel with God revealing himself. Um, so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, his people um, who he had communion with, they fell in their sin. And we see the entire Old Testament as really this, this narrative of recounting the people's sin, God's promise to bring them salvation. And then finally, in the New Testament, we see him sending salvation through his son, Christ. And then in the epistles, we see instruction on how the church ought to live in light of the gospel. And so really you have, in a succinct way to put it, God, man, Christ response. Now, this liturgy can be fleshed out a little bit further. If you look at those individual narratives I mentioned earlier, um, such as Revelation, for example, you see God revealing himself, God's people responding in adoration, but also God's people realizing that they are unworthy and then confessing their sins. And then we see Christ revealed to the people as the payment for their sins, the propitiation for their sins. And then we see God's word proclaimed. So really, once you get to Revelation 6, Revelation 6 through 19 is essentially God uh, giving his word in the and it's scattered throughout with responses of dedication. And just like we might have in our own worship services, we have the proclamation of the word. And then following that, we have a time of response in which we commit to the Lord, having heard his word proclaimed. And then following that, we we see communion. We we practice communion. And along with that, prayers of supplication, because it's only through communion with God that we're able to bring our prayers of supplication to him. And then at the end of the service, we're sent out to serve. We see this commissioning. And so that, I think, is a very biblical formula, a very, a very biblical liturgy, because it's the most common pattern we see throughout Scripture. Yeah, it really does come full circle. I, I love that. Thank you. Well, let's do another question here. Um, now, this question is sort of related to what you were just talking about. Is a worship service on Sunday night scriptural? That's the question. And if so, how does this conflict with using the Lord's Day as a day of rest? Interesting. Yeah, and so I'll also assume that they mean in addition to a morning service. Probably. The morning service. That's what I was thinking, too. Yeah, because obviously, you know, God didn't say you must worship at 1115 a.m. or on a Sunday. We do have clear biblical pattern for worshiping on Sunday because of the resurrection of Christ and the practice of the New Testament church. Um, But as far as a time, it doesn't matter. The um, so as far as having a second service on a Sunday, I don't see any prohibition against that. You know, often we talk about the regulative principle, which says we must only do and worship that which God has commanded us to do. Um, And so when we look in Scripture, we see things like singing, reading the Word, um, praying, preaching the Word, the Lord's Supper, baptism, giving. 
all these things that should be included in worship, but we don't see instruction on what time we ought to worship or whether we should restrict ourselves to just a single service or not. So I don't see really any harm in having a second service. At the same time, I see no reason to, there's no biblical mandate to have a second service as well. It's just an additional time for the church to, to gather and to be built up. And I almost would be hesitant to say that that's the gathering of local church. Certainly it's an invitation to the church to gather, but when we think of the gathering, it's that yes. primary Sunday Whichever one you determine, whichever one the church determines as their primary service is, is really the one which is biblically mandated. And if you do another one, great. If not, that's fine too. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great answer. And I know that, especially when I was a young mom with lots of little kids that, um, you know, you have to get dressed, you have to get them home and get them, get a nap. And then you have to get them up and get them dressed and get them in the car and get them fed and get them to church and all that. Um, that can, that cannot feel very restful <laughs> at times, you know, on a Sunday afternoon when you're trying to get to church on Sunday night. So I would just especially add a little note to the, to the young moms here or people maybe that are caretakers or whatever, just, just from me, not necessarily from Laramie, but if, if that's where you are at the season in your life, uh, that God has you in, you know, a lot of events take place on Sunday afternoon in the church, like choirs and classes and service projects and all kinds of things like that. It's okay for you not to overload yourself with being involved in every single thing that's going on at church yeah. on Sunday. You know, you may have to just restrict yourself for a while to Sunday morning and Sunday night service, or maybe even not Sunday night service, you know, for, for a little bit of time. But um, when once God frees you up a little bit more, then you can uh, be more involved in some more of those programs and activities that take place on Sunday. So, so don't wear yourself out, you know, learn how to say no when God wants you to say no to something so that you can focus on your family and things like that. So, and I would say, all righty, well, leader, if it's okay, I would, just, I would say from yeah. a leader's perspective, we ought not bind the conscience of people in things that are all the very good or extra biblical. Yeah. Right. I, I really appreciate that y'all don't do that at our church, Laramie. You never, y'all never make us feel you know, like we're sinning if we're not there for every little thing or anything like that. So I hope everybody who's listening has a great pastor and elders like like we have at my church that are that are conscious of that. So, well, uh, this next question I really like because I, I really related to it because I often have a hard time keeping perfectly still, no matter what sort of worship service I'm in, whether it's Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, whatever day of the week it is. But I have a hard time standing really still. And so I could relate to this um, when I'm, when I'm singing, that is, what is the biblical view of, and she uses the word dancing, where you stand while singing? I think she really just means kind of moving, not actual dancing, <laughs> but what's the biblical view of dancing where you stand while singing? I always sway when singing or bob my head to the song. Also, what about clapping after a solo or a choir special? Yeah. So when it comes to dance you know you you even hit on what what do we necessarily mean by that as far as like if you're in the pew and you're and you're singing along and you and you tend to move a little bit when you do that i i don't necessarily have any any issue with that i do think you might want to just 
question yourself. By question yourself, I don't mean think about what you're doing wrong. <laughs> you know, I mean, just think of what is causing you to do that movement. Sometimes we can approach worship with um, this, this idea that we're either coming to uh, we're in, we're engaging in some kind of entertainment aesthetic or that we're engaging in some kind of mystical um, experience. Um, and then we miss the purpose of worship sometimes. And I would just want to be careful that when it comes to movement and dance, that those things aren't necessarily a response to a misplaced um, perspective on worship. Cause sometimes I think we can come to worship and think that the music there is supposed to have some kind of entertainment value. And that can be reflected in the way even our bodies respond to that. Like if we're out dancing in the aisles, well, that's, that's not necessarily the purpose of, of music and worship for us to, to feel something from that. Certainly we can feel things through that, but the goal is not to create some kind of emotional response that might pour over into some kind of, physical response as well. Um, But as far as standing in the pew and singing, like I often find myself as I'm singing, I'm not necessarily moving because I'm trying to dance. I certainly am am, am no dancer, but I, (laughs) it just sometimes requires movement to engage in singing, just the actual physical, you know, the physical component of of singing. So when it comes to that, I, I see no issue. But one thing that might be worth addressing is this idea of we see dancing in Scripture, therefore we ought to have dance in worship. Well, the the problem is, I think people think that you see dancing in Scripture in in the Old Testament, for example, on like every other page. The problem is, I think there are maybe ten ten references to to dance, and when it comes to, don't quote me on that. I guess I just quoted <laughs> myself though, but. Um, I'm saying it might not be exactly 10, but it's just very, very few references to dancing in the Psalms. For example, I think people think you'd see dancing in every Psalm. Well, you see, I think it's in there three times for sure. Once in Psalm 149 and once in 150. And the word we see there for that is machol. And that dancing is not necessarily this corporate activity. If you look at Psalm 149, it talks about things like, um, you know, praising God from our beds. Well, I don't think we should roll beds into the sanctuary during our corporate worship. <laughs> it also talks about, you know, taking up our, our swords and engaging in, 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 in judgment and in battle, these kinds of things, but we wouldn't do that in corporate worship. So what I think those Psalms are particularly referring to is in your life, in all of life, in all that you're doing, be praising God. Um, and so it's not instructing us to do those things in corporate worship, but those things that happen throughout all of life, the content of those often make their way into the substance of what we sing and say in worship, not necessarily the acts themselves. And so I'd be really hesitant to, to first of all, just moving the pew, no big deal about that, but actual more like intentional dancing in worship, I would want to guard against that for, for those reasons. Yeah. Yeah, and then you asked the question about clapping uh, after songs. You know, I, first of all, I would never tell my congregation, don't do that. Um, you know, Michelle, you're, you're a member of our church. You've never seen me, like, rebuke them for that. But I will nope. say, I will say I don't like it um, <laughs> because I think it feeds that entertainment aesthetic. Think about when we do clap. We only clap after so-called special music. We don't clap after a congregational song. We don't clap after a scripture reading, a sermon. Um, we clap 
particularly after things which yeah. are in their appearance, much more performance oriented. Um, so I would say that's kind of a carryover of more of a entertainment aesthetic or understanding of worship more than what it really ought to be. Yeah, I completely agree. And that's why I kind of feel uncomfortable clapping, you know, when when something like that happens and I just say amen or whatever instead of clapping because I, I just feel a little, like you said, it's too kind of entertaining, you know, yeah. uh, sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I, I completely agree with that. Well, moving on from the elements of corporate worship to the leadership of corporate worship, a lot of our listeners naturally want to know about the role of women in the worship service. One listener asked this, is reading the word and leading prayer in church, and I think she means from the platform, is that considered worship? If so, should a woman lead in these areas? And a related question from another listener is this. What role, if any, is permissible for a woman in a Sunday morning worship service or any corporate worship setting? Yeah, so women should absolutely participate in worship. Um, So as far as is there a place for women in worship? Oh, man, absolutely. All believers are called to worship. As far as leadership goes, um, it's... Can women lead in worship? I believe the answer is yes, but with a caveat that it's not in such a way that gives them authority over men within the congregation. And so, for example, we have a choir at our church. Literally, when when I've got sopranos in the choir behind me on the platform singing, they are in a way leading. They're helping other, for example, a soprano in the choir is helping other women in the congregation sing the soprano part. Same is true of the altos. That's that's their main purpose to be up there. So they are leading, they're helping in that way, but they have no authority in that type of leading. Where they would have authority is if they were preaching the word um, in such a way as that they were teaching men uh, in the congregation, because then that would put them in authority over men. So can can women read scripture? Can they pray? Uh, publicly in a worship service, I would say absolutely yes, because we see Paul giving them instruction in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, you know, when you pray, and he gives them instruction on how they ought to do that. They ought to do it with their heads covered. Um, So he wouldn't give them instruction on how they ought to go about prayer in corporate worship if they couldn't do that. And he is talking about, you know, not silent prayers in their seat, but he's talking about verbal prayers. He's talking about things from chapter 11 to 14 in first Corinthians, he's talking about things uh, over divisions in corporate worship. So these things would have been very public, but you know, over in first Corinthians 14, at the end of that passage, he also tells women to be silent in church, but that comes right after a passage in which he's giving instruction on weighing what was just said. So what he's really saying in that passage there is they should keep silent and not weigh what someone has just said. For example, if a man has just prophesied and then a woman comes behind him and weighs what he has said, then that puts her in authority over the man who just spoke. And so in that context, that's what needs not happen. Um, And so this is just, this stems from the creative order. Uh, Men were created to lead. Um, Women uh, in this context were created to follow that leadership of man and for women to preach reverses that authority, and then we get into some really dangerous territory. And it's worth noting, it's not just a cultural issue. I hear people refer to 
well, head coverings were cultural, so then women being silent was cultural as well. No, no, the head coverings had to do with their customs as it regards marriage. And if a woman's head was covered, it showed that she was married to a man. Uh, but if her head was uncovered, then that shows that she wasn't married. But if she was married and had her head uncovered, then that would be uh, an insult to her husband. It would be dishonoring to her husband. So that was a culture they have. In our culture, we don't have you know head coverings as a symbol of marriage. If we did, then yes, we should practice the same thing, but we don't. So that is cultural in that way. But the reason women being silent in worship and not having a role of authority in worship is because of the rooting, the rooting of that in creation that Paul does. He, he, he couches that in creative order. And so that's the reason that's something that's not just cultural, but something that should be practiced. So you talked about culture uh, a lot. And so considering the evangelical culture that we are all a part of with women pastors and women preaching and women usurping authority in the church and women being at the forefront and also men not stepping up and taking leadership in the church and considering all of these things that a lot of maybe our listeners have come out of or that, you know, that we're aware of that are going on in evangelicalism today, uh, is there a question of maybe whether it's wise to have a woman on the platform reading scripture, even if she's not commenting on it, even if she's not, you know, explaining it or anything like that, just the fact that like we have several different passages of scripture that are read at various times during our worship service. Uh, would it be wise to have a woman in that position of reading that passage of scripture or a woman leading a corporate time of prayer from the platform? Isn't it possible that people could in the congregation when there's so much of this junk going on about women being pastors and whatnot, uh, that people in the congregation who are not really aware that this is technically not a violation of Scripture, couldn't they be confused? And might it might it not be the wisest thing uh, to to practice? What are your thoughts on that? I, I would want to be careful <laughs> that in in avoiding that which is unbiblical, we didn't necessarily overcorrect. And and avoid things that that are permissible. Um, so I would just want to be careful of the the of swinging the pendulum too far to the other direction. Now, as you noted in our services, it's rare that we have a woman read scripture, but that's not so much because of of us trying to avoid that confusion. It's it's usually more because I'm about to lead something that's flowing from that text of scripture, and so somehow I want to set that up. So with, if I think if, for example, we called, we had a lady come up and read the scripture and then she stepped away and then I walked in and then we started singing a song. I don't know that that's, that the connection would be as clear as if, as if, if in this case where I read the scripture and said, having just read this passage of scripture, let's confess our sins to God as we sing, you know, X, Y, Z. And so I think for us, it's more about me trying to connect everything um, but at Christmas and things like that, where we have like a lessons and carol service and we'll have nine passages of scripture over the course of an evening. I like using different people for that. Uh, even females, even children. Um, at the end of the day, they're just reading. I don't want them to comment on it, but I do think it's perfectly fine. I would just want to be careful. We don't swing the pendulum too far um, in our, 
in our correction. Yeah. Mm, very good. You know, I, I want to transition here. There's something else that's a major issue with our listeners, even in good, strong, doctrinally sound and reformed churches, is the use of music from heretical sources like Hillsong, Elevation, Bethel, uh, Jesus Culture, other biblical or unbiblical artists. Uh, and the main question seemed to be, and I'm going to just throw a bunch of them at you, Laramie. Um, is it biblical to sing certain songs from these sources that don't contradict scripture, even though the source itself is unbiblical? Uh, how is singing Hillsong music any different from singing the hymn, It Is Well With My Soul, since the author of that hymn apostatized later in life? And if I'm going to be, uh, you know, going to the most doctrinally sound church I can find and they use music from these heretical sources, should I sing along or just stand quietly until the song is over? And one of our listeners asked, uh, I asked my pastor if uh, by singing these songs, we are financially supporting these ministries. And his answer was no. Is that true? And finally, how do I approach my church leadership about why it's unbiblical to use music from heretical sources? And that was a lot of questions, uh, but our, our listeners are dying to know, Laramie, what are your thoughts on these? Yeah, those are those are all very good questions, all very important questions. As far as whether it's biblical to sing those certain songs from sources that are, you know, heretical sources or even just really bad sources, but the songs themselves aren't necessarily, I would say for a couple of reasons, we might want to avoid those. Um, not my, uh, for a couple of reasons, we should avoid those. Uh, one of them is when it comes to current popular groups, when we sing um, a Bethel song, for example, that's our stamp of approval on Bethel. And then that allows that that gives credence to the, to anyone who is in the services to turn around and use them as a resource in their own personal life as well. And the reason I say current and popular is because if we sing, okay, you mentioned it as well with my soul. Didn't didn't Horatio Spafford apostatize at the end of his life? Um, yeah, but guess what? He's no one is turning around and saying, oh, it is well with my soul. I really like that song. I think I'm going to be a follower of Horatio Spafford now. No one's like, you know, looking up Horatio Spafford on Apple Music. No one's going to his website to learn his his doctrine. So I think that's a very important consideration as well, that Bethel is prone to draw followers. Hillsong is prone to draw followers, and we need to um, warn our people against that. Horatio Spafford has been dead for 100 plus years. Um, there's, there's no worry there. Um, but if someone did want to make the conclusion, Hey, I think I'll just avoid Horatio Spafford as well. That, that's fine. I mean, fine. Avoid him if you want. I don't necessarily want to take that position, but I'd rather someone be really conservative and avoid more than avoid less because there's no, there's no end to how many songs we have available to us, to us nowadays. So I'd certainly be okay with somebody wanting to be a little bit more strict, than to be um, less strict. You mentioned you know, going to a doctrinally sound church and they use music from those sources, whether or not to sing along. Um, for, for me, there are songs that I've sung along to that are from a source like that. Um, and there are some that I won't sing along to. Like if the, if the song is just, I'm not going to sing along with Reckless Love. Yeah. Um, <laughs> not going to do it. Well, I sing along with um, the song Man of Sorrows by Hillsong. 
Sure, I'll sing along with that. I think it's a it's a decent song, and there's nothing inaccurate in it. Um, but but that's only because I know to to not follow the sources. I'm able to to you know distinguish what I'm doing in the moment from what effect it could have on me in a moment. But I, I certainly don't want them to sing those songs. But I I think there's there's more harm in me probably just standing there silent. And there is just singing along and just knowing in my own mind, you know, where this comes from. As long as it's true, I'm not going to sing anything false for sure. Um, yeah. And I think it's also worth noting that with these groups, you know, we mentioned, I mentioned a reason earlier why we probably want to avoid using their music. I would also say not even, even if the content is good with some of these artists, we should avoid them also based on just the embodiment of charismatic theology within their songs. Um, Scott Annual wrote several great articles at the G3 website on, on how much of contemporary worship carries the embodiment of charismatic theology and that charismatic worship theology is trying to take you on this emotional journey. And a lot of contemporary worship songs are trying to do that same thing, take you on this emotional journey. And you can tell by the way a song starts, the way it builds at like the two-third moment of the song and then repeats the chorus in a couple different ways towards the end, all trying to take you on this, this emotional journey. And that's really charismatic, a charismatic liturgy squeezed down into a song. And so although it might have decent content, the form of the song can be really unhelpful as well in that instance. I thought it was a really interesting question about the, are we supporting them financially when we sing their songs? Yeah. Um, you said one pastor said, no, that we're not. Well, it's possible that you aren't, but if you're singing their songs and they aren't get paid for it, you're doing something illegal um, because you're supposed to be reporting the songs you sing through CCLI. Right. That way, when you, that way CCLI says, okay, Hillsong was sung this many times um, you know, this year. So therefore they should get the royalty of X amount. And so as at Woodlawn, if we're reporting through CCLI, what we're singing, that determines the the financial benefit that the artist gets from that. And it's good for them to get paid for their music as well. Um, so if you're not paying them, that means you're not reporting what you're singing. And um, that's not, that's not good either. So you want to report because that's the legal way to go about it. Um, and then it comes out of your CCLI payment that you make each year to be to be able to use songs like that or you could just use public domain hymns and then you don't have to have ccl license or anything you're and you're you're fine in that way <laughs> very safe yeah that's that uh that question kind of bothered me a little bit too because i had the first same thought that you did is that well uh, you know you're supposed to be reporting and in that way that they're making music they're making money off of their music but then this pastor said no and so i have to wonder is is he are they really not uh reporting or is this pastor sort of ignorant of what goes on uh with reporting and whether or not any money is going to them or was he lying so uh that Probably. that might be something our our listener who asked that question might want to consider and and think about and pray about and and maybe look into a little bit and then uh, the the question about how in the world do you approach your church leadership about why it's unbiblical to sing those songs? That is uh, the awkward question of the day, isn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So being a church leader myself, I know how I want to be approached. And so I think that would be really helpful. For one, don't come to me and tell me 
that what I'm doing is unbiblical. It won't, it won't be very helpful. Now, that's not to say that if I'm doing something unbiblical, not to say something to me, but there's going to be a more winsome way to lead me along in that way. If I'm doing something unbiblical, what I would want a church member to do is come to me and said, hey, I, I just have some questions about this. And I know you lead us in this way. And there's, but this over here is, is causing me to have conviction about something. Would you, would you walk with me and let me share some things with you that I'm seeing? And maybe you could help me understand as well. And so in that walking through that situation together, I think there's a much more uh, chance of, of winning them over in that. So I think just how you approach them is the biggest. And then certainly show them the truth along the way. But but try to be try to do it with a listening ear as well, um, and I think it'll it'll be accepted. It'll be received much better. Yeah, love that. Yeah, that's a that's a great way to do it. And also, you know, if I could, you know, as as a wife of a former minister of music, if I could just throw something in a little bit there, is that you know, come approach your minister of music the way that you would want to be approached. You know, use that golden rule. Don't be attacking. Don't be unkind. Don't be screaming or anything like that. I've unfortunately, my husband had some church members like that in the past uh, approach him that way. And then also, you know, be really thoughtful. Is this, is this a matter of just opinion, just something that my preference, you know, that I don't like personally, or is this something that is really an actual biblical problem? Um, and try to, you know, on those things that are debatable issues that are just a matter of personal taste or whatever, maybe, you know, you just grin and bear that or, uh, you know, but if if it gets to be a, a really big biblical problem, certainly uh, be kind and approach your minister of music like that and and talk about the problems and, and listen too, because there may be things going on that you don't know about. You don't see everything that goes on behind the scenes at your church, believe me. And uh, so you, you probably want to be a good listener on that too. Well, Laramie, thank you so much for answering our listeners' questions today. We really appreciate it. Is there anything that we haven't asked you about that you think the average Christian in the pew on Sunday mornings should know about worship? Yeah, and we've hinted at it along the way. I think it is really important for people to know uh, why they're coming to worship. In 1 Corinthians 14, we see the word or the phrase in some form or the other of building up mentioned throughout 1 Corinthians 14. And so I would really want people to know that when you're coming to corporate worship, you're, you're coming for the purpose of the church, the body of Christ being built up. And when you have that right understanding of why you're gathering, it changes your expectations and it causes you desire the right things, not to be entertained, not to come experience some something, some feelings, but you're coming to, to be a part of the church being built up. And I think that changes our approach to worship. So I'd encourage people in that way. Oh, thank you, Laramie. Would you do us the favor and put in one more plug for the G3 Worship Workshop that uh, you're going to be helping teach? Yeah, so we have one coming up in our, uh, in Arkansas in October, and it's going to be at Grace Bible Theological Seminary. And we've got guys like Scott Annual, who's the vice president and the editor-in-chief of G3 Ministries, helping us lead that. Matt Sykes, who is the pastor for worship and discipleship at Praise Mill Baptist Church in Douglasville, Georgia, helping lead. Actually, those two brothers and myself will be teaching the foundational principles for the for the workshop. And then we've got Jeff Johnson, who is the pastor of Grace Bible Church and also the president of 
Grace Bible Theological Seminary, and Owen Strayen, who's the provost at Grace Bible Theological Seminary. Both of those brothers are going to be uh, preaching for us in our model services. And those two-day workshops are just a really great opportunity for men who lead and plan worship or who or the preacher in their service and just need to know what biblical worship is or even volunteers in the service, uh, volunteers in, this, in the church. Men volunteers, I want to be clear about that, um, <laughs> who participate in the leading of in planning of worship. It's a great time for them to come. It's two days. Uh, we get we have small groups taught, small group times where we're working through and we're planning services together so that we might shape each other and help us hone our skills. We've got the foundational principles, which is everybody together, where we're talking about things like what is biblical worship? What does it mean for worship to be shaped by the gospel? What does it mean for worship to be sermon minded as we're planning the whole service. What is it, what is the role of worship in music? Other, the other ordinances in worship as well. Practically, how do we practice those? Why do we practice those? So we're talking about those things in the foundational principles. Then we're working them out in the small groups and then we're seeing them modeled in model services at the end of each day as well. And it's a really, really great time. Brothers mm-hmm. who come there are looking to work. And so it's not intimidating at all, even though it might feel like it if you're on your way there. But once you get there, you realize everyone is there to learn and to be a help. And so it's just a really great time. I definitely encourage it. Thank you. And it sounds so uplifting and just an amazing uh, session or two there. Listeners, we hope that you would consider sending your pastors to the G3 worship workshop to, uh, or to one of the, you know, expository preaching workshops uh, that was mentioned, or that you'll at least share this episode with them and encourage them to attend. And as we said, we've got all of the information in our show notes today. So go click on those links and get all the information that you need. Laramie, thanks so much for joining us tonight. And I think this episode will be very helpful uh, for our listeners. Yeah, thanks yes, thank you so much. We, You are such a blessing to me and my family and our church. And I'm glad that I got to share that blessing with our listeners today. Yeah, it was a joy to be with you all. Listeners, be sure to check out Laramie's four-part series on worship in the show notes. Not only is it a great series, but Amy and I are both going to be doing some traveling in the near future, and it'll give you some great listening material during those weeks when we can't record a new episode. Yes. And while you're in a clicking mood, don't forget to head on over to a awordfitlyspoken.life and check out our episode archives, our gospel presentation, our PayPal and Patreon links, and all of our other resources. And until next time, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness and walk worthy.